0: Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money.
1: The best things
0: in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees I see
1: From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. Thanks for being here. I'm your host, Chris Hill, and I'm joined by Motley Fool Senior Analysts Seth Jason, James Early, and Tim Hansen. Guys, good to see you as always. And good to see you, Chris. Chris. On today's show, Pepsi gets its kicks in Russia, Abercrombie reports some fierce sales, and Google goes after Groupon. We'll talk with investing legend Jack Bogle, the founder of Vanguard, plus, as always, a look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin with the big macro, and guys, so much for the holiday cheer. On Friday, the Labor Department reported that the unemployment rate jumped to 9.8% in November, a seven-month high. The economy added 39,000 non-farm payroll jobs in November, much lower than expected. But Seth, revised jobs for September and October show 38,000 more jobs were created than the original estimate. Break down the numbers for us, please.
2: That's the number I actually look for because the, the earliest reports, and that's the headline number we're seeing today, those are, those are often revised by, you know, up to 60 or 1,000 jobs uh, either direction, although lately it's usually been in the up direction. So we had about 20,000 uh, per month for the, the prior two months, uh, upward revision, so that's uh, that's better. But this headline number isn't great, and um, I mean, I guess it's, it's a job gain that's better. I'm not sure what analysts were expecting. Uh, I, I, I'm not privy to what their hopes and dreams are. <laughs> Uh, but when I look at this report, as I usually uh, do, I see uh, that the trend in, uh, in temporary help, which is uh, kind of a leading indicator for the economy, but although it's not the highest quality employment, was up 40,000 in the month. Uh, Health care, which had been a source of strength for a long time, only inched up you know, 8,000 jobs. And retail trade employment, according to the report, fell 28,000 at department stores and others. It looks to me like uh, many of the companies out there that are the retailers we we know they're cutting prices. We see that in the news, mm-hmm. and it looks to me like they are trying to offset those price uh, those price cuts by keeping their uh, staff very slim over the holiday season. Doesn't sound like it makes sense, but th- that's the best guess I have.
3: James Early? Yeah, the retail is, is pretty interesting because we did have, have fairly strong sales, but yet they're, they're not hiring. The job stuff, t- to me, is, is, is still a non sequitur. We have 9.8%, the highest unemployment, uh, at least uh, for now since April, but then according to the Wall Street Journal, the four-week moving average of jobless claims is actually the lowest since August of 2008, so, so maybe these people have just given up and, 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 and forgotten about looking for a job, but I just don't know that we have enough tea leaves to read here yet. Tim?
4: Well, we've talked in the past about how businesses in the United States were sort of holding off on capital spending yep. and on hiring, and that just appears to still be the case. There's no certainty; they're not hiring, and that's gonna that's gonna hold off the any any sustainable recovery.
1: Well, and the other big macro story is the ongoing crisis in the EU. Um, a lot of anxiety over the situation in Ireland. Uh, there's concern that Portugal may be next in line for a bailout.
4: Portugal, <laughs> <laughs> who thought?
1: It was my port drinking habit. <laughs> One of the you're, are, you're a global game. Guy, what are your thoughts on that? Well all this?
4: I mean this is this is fascinating in a lot of ways for, for a nerd like me. You know, basically we, we, we talked in the past about you know what is the future of the euro, and that's yep. really what's hanging in the balance right now. When it comes to Europe, the reason they're going through all these bailouts, they let Iceland collapse. And the reason they let Iceland collapse is that had no ties to the rest of Europe. If Ireland were to collapse or Portugal were to collapse, it would cause widespread banking failures across Europe and cause the EU to rethink the entire euro currency as it stands now they have no way to get out of the euro and the current generation of uh, political uh, people in political power there were the ones who created the euro and I think you know speaking um, politically they want to have legacies and the euro they see as their legacy Uh, Jean-Claude Trichet the European Central Bank president um, basically made unlimited money available to European banks this week, and you know, while that caused a sell-off in the European in the U.S. market when Bernanke said he would do it, Europeans apparently are very fired up about the fact that they're going to be printing on unlimited money. But it's basically just going to come down to uh, can these politicians preserve the euro or stay in power long enough to preserve the euro before they get voted out by all the angry
2: people in Europe. If you're asking yourself the, the dumb question that I always ask myself, not being that smart of it, which is why does this matter in any of these countries? The reason is once you're locked into this multi-country currency, you do not have access as a country to the tool that is the the only way to get out. Of, of of these bad the economic only reason situations. Argentina is still around today. yeah <laughs> which is to devalue your currency either all at once or gradually uh, they cannot do that and uh, countries like Spain uh, Portugal and Ireland certainly cannot increase productivity enough to compete with the Germanys etc so they are really they're stuck in a really bad place James
3: well you know on the topic of Ireland there's there's always a freeloader in every group uh, you know <laughs> the show panel obviously me um, but what, what, what's uh, worse is, is that the Irish banks are actually—this is the Temps point. I, I read the most exposed to uh, to uh, Spain, Portugal, and Greece. In other words, they're the ones who, who lent all that money to, to these
4: sketchy countries. Well, the UK is even concerned. You know, a lot of people say, "Oh, the UK made a great move. They stayed out of the euro. They've got the pound. They're going to be great." But their banks bought an enormous amount of European debt. Some of the UK has said they'll even step in to help Ireland because if the euro goes down and all those loans blow up, the UK banks are going down Isn't too. It's so funny because nobody really likes Ireland but but they have to <laughs> what are you talking about <laughs> well, we said that, I think <laughs> I said this last week which is that Ireland has long just been the leech on the EU you know in the early days they got all this money and they did no, and they just built up their country they had a great economy then they overspended and now they're being uh, bailed out again they're just a total leech on this. This. Union. Oh, what am my I? What am I in like
2: 1870s New York or America here? Leave a <laughs> poor Irish alone. I got a couple of my home Irish country guys is just right taking here. a pounding. Look at here. the size of his head. We know exactly where he's
1: from. Um, <laughs> at, at what point? At what point does Germany just say, "Enough! I'm out of here." I'm. Uh, uh, well, I'm there's done. no
4: there's no legal way for them to even do that. Uh, that. So, in order for for Germany to bail out on the European Union, they would have to amend all of the treaties that are governing the union, which, among other things, requires
1: you know massive legislative approvals across Europe and and a popular vote in Ireland. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Seth Jason, James Early, and Tim Hansen. Guys, some good retail news this week. For the first time in history, sales on Cyber Monday surpassed $1 billion. Uh, Seth, you're our retail guru. How big an indicator is this for the holidays? So
2: sick of Cyber Monday. Does anyone <laughs> care about Cy- that? Was a, I think that we was a thing back when nobody Come spent on. online. I don't think that. I don't think the Cyber Monday uh, number matters except much to. Uh, to media pundits who are who are really sad because they can't talk about Black Friday uh, uh, anymore. <laughs> but um, to me, what's more important is how much money is continuing to to be spent online, and companies like Amazon are, are still growing at rates far in excess of their bricks and mortar peers, and, and that's a very interesting trend. So uh, that's the trend I would look for, and
4: Amazon is, is one of the leading companies. Tim? There was one interesting nugget in the data about Cyber Monday for people who say this is, that crossing the $1 billion threshold is a sign of consumer strength. Uh, it, while uh, sales were up 16% in Cyber Monday, uh, the number of actual buyers declined 4%. So the thing that drove the gross was average selling price, which speaks to Seth's point that people are getting more um, comfortable buying things online, particularly big ticket items. But there was no broad consumer strength. The number of buyers actually went down. And also that people who have money continue to have money. <laughs> <laughs> A truism that has governed the world for
1: eons. <laughs> target reporting same store sales in november up five and a half percent well above analyst expectations abercrombie and fitch same store sales up 22 percent in november and the stock jumped 11 percent on the news seth those are some fierce numbers
2: well abercrombie did so <laughs> so, bad should, we for so the, f- should we explain the fierce? the refer? fierce thing is when i went to their investor relations page uh, for the first time a couple of years ago i guess or i don't know how many years ago it was uh, to directly get a press release instead of getting it from some other source I didn't know I was on the investor relations page because there was this giant shirtless dude (laughs) and just the word in red, fierce, written across Uh, or near his pecs. Did you enjoy the picture? I did not. I went to the guest investor relations page, which I recommend to everybody uh, as a a far superior alternative. I I was hoping to find something to make fun of Abercrombie for in this uh, release, but I I couldn't really find much. I, I actually called the phone number and listened to it, which is something the reporters out there don't normally do. To see what was going on beneath the surface. Now I will say that Abercrombie did not tell us much about the discounting, and I assumed that they that they cut prices quite a bit to get people in there. All they said was that average retail unit uh, unit was uh, down three percent, which isn't bad considering the sales growth they had, and that they did indeed plan this to be their strongest month, which means they probably blitzed everybody they could think of with uh, advertising with circulars etc uh, in order to get them all in this month and and they hint that they're going to give up some sales in the coming months but it's still a pretty good report from a company that was struggling for a long time James yeah the,
3: the teen retail in general was, was was really hot as as Seth obviously knows I and mean, you don't well, I spend so much time
4: <laughs> with yeah. the teenagers in the mall you're, you're, you're definitely uh, I saw Seth in hot topic the other day yeah <laughs>
1: <laughs> hey that place has got great sales because nobody's buying anything all right if you had to own one of these stocks and hold it for the next five years years. Target or Abercrombie? Tim?
4: I say Target. They've been putting up incredible numbers in the US um, and that that new card, I think we talked about this last week, their new loyalty card has been doing really well, so that was a nice innovation. James? I I
3: might go off script and say Aeropostale, the imitation, quasi-imitation, Abercrombie. Who disappointed.
1: Well, well, if we're we're going off script, I'm saying Walmart. (laughs) (laughs) Co-CEO, less script.
2: Stock is down like 14%. Seth? Uh, I'll stay on script and go with Target. Abercrombie is uh, entirely dependent on on a fad continuing for years, and and their business is to be the most expensive player in that fad group, and that's not a good position.
1: Coming up, is Google getting a good deal if it spends $6 billion on Groupon? Talk amongst yourselves. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. For investing commentary and analysis 24-7, go to the Motley Fool's website, fool.com. Chris Hill here in studio with Seth Jason, James Early, and Tim Hansen as we dig into some of the companies making headlines this week. Guys, numerous reports that Google is looking to acquire Groupon, the popular daily deal site, for anywhere from 5 to $6 billion. Uh, what do we make of this? Groupon is a private company. so um, w- <laughs> I, I, I think there's a very, very happy guy who started Groupon. Yeah. yeah a
2: 30-year-old so. founder or something?
1: Sure. Come on. Good what, for him. But if you're a Google shareholder, are you excited about this? There's well, you're used to them just spending <laughs>
4: wild sums of money on things that may or may not make Does sense. Does it even matter if this is a wasted $6 billion?
1: CNB- I don't think the average Google shareholder cares. CNBC was reporting this week that uh, what makes Groupon attractive as an acquisition is they apparently have an amazing gross margins, 50%, somewhere in that neighborhood.
4: Show us the books. Well, yeah. you know, I don't think it's the margins that attracted Google so much. I think it's the fact that they think that they can take Groupon's business, which has been, by all accounts, anecdotally successful. Again, we don't know the numbers. We yep. don't know how they're booking their revenue or recording their margins. But and then better target it. Um, from what I know about Groupon, they only they do one deal a day. And it's just they blast out the deal in that city to the people who have signed up. Yeah. I, I assume what Google would want to do is know what, obviously because Google watches you at all times by peering <laughs> through your window, um, they would know what you actually want a deal for and then better match the, con, uh, the coupon with the, the um, consumer. And that's why I think it's an epic fail if they get it. Because...
2: Well, one, I won't go into. I think Facebook knows better things about you and could do something better. Mark Zuckerberg is
4: creepier. Yeah, knows <laughs> yeah.
2: more, but. But I think that that the reason Groupon sort of works is there's one thing per area, right? Mm-hmm. And if you start blasting people with, with, with a stuff variety of actual stuff <laughs> that that I think you kind of dilute the buzz, uh, I, I don't see how that it works. That may be true. That at be at true. least not for $6 billion worth of value. James?
3: I see Groupon as an evil tool that preys on the weak. I mean, if you oh, look... Oh, yeah. It's definitely First that. of all, the average discount is 50%, and all of, all of the remaining... Purchase price. Groupon takes half. And how many really famous legitimate businesses do you see using Groupon? Not many. It's these sort of no-name startups that are desperate for business. It's sort of like the, the rent-to-own or the pawn shop, payday lender uh, world uh, for, for small businesses, basically. But
1: a lot of companies are are looking very closely at this space. Amazon this week um, made a one hundred seventy-five million dollar investment in Living Social, which is a, a DC-based competitor of Groupon. Ooh, founded so, by Georgetown yeah. graduates. Yeah. Well, really? let's go back
2: well, to what this, is, so, that what this is. What this is. Is this is the the online equivalent of that coupon booklet that that cute little eleven year old like <laughs> Girl Scout sells you in the fall where where you where you get twenty bucks worth of stuff uh, for ten dollars or whatever and there's all these coupons. In fact, I believe the Groupon founder uh, started this business out of kind of morphing that charity thing into into a, a for profit situation. And so there is really no moat here, although I have to say that the, the name Groupon works so well that that may be as much moat as they need for a while.
4: Well, there is no moat to, to speak on that. The Living Social founders, um, I was reading the, the bio because I was interested, as, as a Georgetown alum myself, yep. about how they founded this company, which seems to be doing well. And uh, basically, they vetted a company, failed at a few things, and then sort of found their way into the coupon business because they saw it working in a couple other places.
1: So, What's the best deal you've ever gotten? Uh, all this talk of deal making, which uh, and it doesn't have to be with Groupon just purchasing something, yeah. Best bargain, best deal you ever got, uh, James.
3: Wow, I-, I got a hell of a deal on, <laughs> on underpants at the Gap outlet. It, it was a I remember piece. this story, I remember the story. A, I couldn't resist, you know. So, I like <laughs> next 30 years, I'm gonna be wearing Gap underpants and so, so the, the elastic dry rot. Yeah, but wait, last I, time you said they came with a free tennis ball, but if,
1: if, sock, it was a sock. <laughs> yeah, <it> was a <laughs> Steve Broido?
5: Um no amazing deals. We recently bought a house and we didn't have a realtor and normally that doesn't work and it almost didn't work, but then it did work out, so we did we did pretty well
1: there. So your house, which Thanks to Groupon. F- for for regular <laughs> listeners of the show, your house, which has been basically the bane of your existence, that's the best deal you've ever gotten. <laughs> yeah.
5: Pretty much. I think so. I'm planning on dying there. So.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he's talking about next week when he comes falls off a ladder. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Pepsi has bought a controlling stake in Wim Bil Dan, a Russian food and beverage company. Pepsi spent $3.8 billion to get it. Tim, is this a good deal? Well, you know, I'll say this Russia
4: is a large an exciting growth market, <laughs> but one we have heretofore totally avoided at, at Motley Fool Global Gains because it is also a cesspool of corruption. <laughs> um, I say good luck to Pepsi. Uh, you have You have a very interesting business. You didn't pay a horrible price because of the fact that Russian stocks aren't expensive because everybody knows it's successful cesspool of corruption, but you are probably going to have a little bit of a tricky hand um, operating and getting money in and out of the country.
1: They also um, got a good price because the deal was announced before it was announced that Russia's, Talk getting, about good timing, Russia's yeah. getting the World yep, Cup in they,
4: 2018. They made a massive investment in Russia. Russia is now Pepsi's largest emerging market, and they did it before Russia was awarded the World Cup, so they probably got a discount to what they would have had to pay today. James.
3: Well, the interesting backstory here is the Russians are going crazy for milk. Uh, their, their current consumption is like less than half the developed world average, but it's been growing at twenty-two percent annually since two thousand and six. So, so this is this Wimbledon, which is named for for Wimbledon tournament, and they, the, the founders wanted something that didn't sound Russian because Russian-sounding stuff sounds sketchy. To Mission Russians. accomplished. Exactly. <laughs> are these the guys uh, who it's, make? It's the, big
2: in milk.
4: Are these the guys who make the yogurt beverages, or am I thinking of a different the Russian? Kefir. They might. Well, they I'm do. Just um, I know uh, yep. Coke in Russia, they only sell about 50 um, eight ounce Coke beverages per year per capita in Russia, and it's about 150 to 200 in the United States. So, as James points out, there's, there's. this is happening in a lot of the emerging world, rapid per capita beverage consumption growth. Um, so, it's an interesting market, but again, good luck with uh, the authorities, the regulation, getting treated yeah. fairly. And, and those all other that.
1: authorities. Oh, boy. Speaking of the World Cup, on Thursday, FIFA awarded the 2022 World Cup. To Qatar or Qatar, as some people pronounce it, uh, in the days leading up to the announcement, infrastructure stocks in Qatar were rising. Uh, coincidence, Tim? This is this is inane for so many reasons. <laughs> you're a, you're a big soccer fan, so you weren't happy. About I was this.
4: unhappy. I was hoping to take my, my newborn son, who would be 12 in 2022, to a game here in the United States. now we'll have to somehow fly to Qatar. Qatar, Qatar, The Q. The Q. <laughs> um, so, A, you know, there's been a lot of talk about FIFA being bribed to give this tournament to, to, to the Q. Um, I think that, given the action in stocks, that there, there may be some truth throughout rumor. But just to, to talk about the inanity here, Qatar's population is 1.4 million people, making it roughly the size of San Antonio, Texas. <laughs> Um, And its average temperature during the World Cup months is a balmy 106 degrees. San Antonio, Texas. Uh, Apparently, in addition to building 16 stadiums, which they'll never use again, they will air condition the entire country. I mean, this is an environmental disaster. That's warming the
1: Earth by 3 degrees. Once they build the air-conditioned stadiums, that's all going to be taken care of. Uh, uh, You know, having
4: been to—I flew through Doha earlier this year, and I will say this about is, Doha. is that the big city? That's the big city. So okay. it's desert city, desert. That, that's all. You, that's basically yep. uh, the cue for you in a nutshell. But it's a fascinating airport. I likened it to the um, the pub in the Star Wars because the cantina, the canteen. Because basically, you can see <laughs> you can see every type of person from the world is crossing paths in Doha. I was the American-looking blonde gentleman passing through. But there are people going to Sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East, India, Asia, Europe, Latin America. It's it's a, a true crossroads. So it's it's an, a fascinating city, but I don't think a good choice for the World Cup.
1: The guys will be back later in the show to talk about the stocks that are on their radar, but we want to hear from you. Are you a Groupon fan? What's the best deal you've ever gotten? Email us at radio at fool.com. That's radio at fool.com. Fortune Magazine called him one of the investment giants of the 20th century. Coming up, we'll talk to Vanguard founder John Bogle about investment illusions and the problem with your mutual fund. This is Motley Fool Money. Money isn't
0: everything. There's
1: no two ways about it. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Fortune Magazine called our guest one of the investment giants of the 20th century. Time Magazine named him one of the world's 100 most influential people, and yet he still comes on our show. John Bogle is the founder of Vanguard, the largest mutual fund company in the United States. He's the president of Vanguard's Bogle Financial Markets Research Center and the author of nine books. His latest is Don't Count on It, Reflections on Investment Illusions, Capitalism, Mutual Funds, Indexing, Entrepreneurship, Idealism, and Heroes. Jack Bogle, welcome back.
0: (laughs) It's good to be with you, Chris.
1: Uh, The title of your book, Don't Count on It, uh, comes from your belief that we're giving numbers a weight they don't deserve and that we're undervaluing things that can't be quantified. What are the main ways that focusing too much on the numbers hurts us? as investors?
0: Well, you know, we treat, we see a number, and if it's got a decimal point, we think it's God's truth, uh, like the unemployment rate is 9.4 percent or something. Uh, and yet we all know that if you, take, if you add to that unemployment rate uh, the number of persons who have given up looking for jobs, it almost doubles, almost 18 percent. So uh, we deceive ourselves when we see those numbers. We, we give them credibility they don't deserve. And uh, we also give, and the stock market is, is one of the one of the places where this kind of illusion of numbers is worst. Uh, you know, we think the past is prologue. It not only is it past market returns in this case, uh, not only are past market returns not prologue, they really can't be. Because as I talk about in the book, uh, past market returns of 9% were 4.5% from dividend yield and 4.5% from earnings growth, because corporate earnings grow about the fast. as our economy pretty regularly. Uh, and the dividend yield today is about 2%. So we have a 2.5% deadweight loss in future returns that aren't accounted for by looking backward. Uh, and then we, we talk about returns, another real aberration is we talk about stock market returns in terms of nominal dollars and not real dollars. So if we take that, um, say, 7% return or 9% return of historical uh, at times, which won't be that high in the future, and take 4% inflation in the last 100 years, and that nine is only five when you, when you talk about real dollars, spendable dollars. And then you say, well, let's, let's talk about mutual fund returns. Well, mutual funds are charging, give or take, around 2% a year, counting their expense ratios, counting their portfolio transaction costs. We transact business uh, speculators in this industry to a, to a remarkable extent, and sales loads. And that's about 2% a year off that five. So now we're down to three. And I haven't even got to taxes yet.
1: (laughs) You're listening to Motley Fool Money. We're talking with Jack Bogle. His new book is Don't Count On It. I want to get your thoughts on uh, a recent article in the New Yorker magazine. Um, It was entitled, What Good Is Wall Street? Um, The author, John Cassidy, points out that the financial services industry, which is the most profitable industry in America, doesn't design, build, or sell anything tangible. Um, And he goes on to note that... uh, financing vital industries and innovation is now a smaller piece of what Wall Street actually does. Um, you've said that on balance the financial system actually subtracts value from society. Um, I guess my question is do, do you think there's any good that comes from Wall Street?
0: Uh, of course there's good uh, we do need a capital allocation, capitalism demands a capital allocation process in which capital goes to the most promising uh, companies and industries in our country or, for that matter, outside of our company. Uh, We allocate capital to the best investments, and that's what Wall Street does well. Uh, If you look at the amount of new issues compared to the volume of trading or the amount of Wall Street revenues uh, from trading as compared to the Wall Street revenues from underwriting or, you know, capitalism, capital formation, uh, in round numbers, uh, I don't want to go into too big a limb, but I think I can say with some certainty that about 85% of what Wall Street does has nothing to do with capital formation, nothing to do with capital allocation, and everything to do with speculating, uh, pitting one investor against another. And the winner is, of course, the croupier that is Wall Street. You know, if Wall Street persuades me to sell my, let's say, IBM, I don't happen to hold any individual stocks, but persuades me to sell my IBM, persuades you to buy it, uh, the world will little note or long remember who holds the IBM stock. Uh, the man in the middle, however, uh, the croupier, just like in Las Vegas, uh, the croupier makes money every time stocks change hands. So we have an industry whose profitability is based not on capital formation, uh, but on uh, speculative trading, by and large. And uh, I won't say some trading isn't good. I won't say we don't need some trading for liquidity. But it has gotten so far out of hand, that you can barely recognize Wall Street today uh, compared to Wall Street when I came into this business 50 years ago. In fact, uh, 50 years ago, the turnover in the New York Stock Exchange was about 20%, and today turnover on the Stock Exchange and NASDAQ, which has become a big factor, is I think around 250%. And if you took this lunatic fringe, high-frequency trading, um, the turnover is probably 800% a year. And that makes no sense at all, except for the people that are doing the trading.
1: You know, to call them croupiers—that's a—that's a rather refined and elegant image that uh, that you've given to Wall Street middlemen. Uh, uh, they have certainly been—they've uh, been called far worse than that. We're talking. Oh, I try
0: and be refined. <laughs>
1: <laughs> We're talking with Jack Bogle, uh, founder of Vanguard and author of his latest book, "Don't Count on It: Reflections on Investment Illusions, Capitalism, Mutual Funds, Indexing, Entrepreneurship." idealism, and heroes. Jack, that's, that's a lot of ground you've covered in your book. You, you've, you left out sex and religion. Is that your next book?
0: Well, <laughs> uh, let's just say that uh, religion might be.
1: <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, <laughs> when it comes to this book, uh, one of the things you touch on is the failure of capitalism. Uh, but what are a couple of things that you think need to be done To prevent another financial collapse like we've seen over the last couple of years?
0: Well, you know, the investors are their own worst enemies. Uh, The capitalism is fine, but our behavior uh, gets us confused about what the whole business is about. Uh, When you have a trading activity, uh, trading dominates, as uh, as Lord Kane said way back in the mid 1930s, uh, when uh, investment, long term investment, becomes a mere bubble. on a whirlpool of short-term speculation, the job of capitalism will be ill-done. And that's where we are today.
1: What surprised you the most about the financial crisis?
0: I had absolutely no idea, except very much at the fringes, how overextended our banks and investment banks were in terms of, of, of uh, risk, risk in the portfolio, the leverage in the portfolio, uh, number one, which is always a problem, no matter what the circumstances, because markets can move. And B, the grotesque lack of investment quality in the portfolios. Uh, these collateralized debt obligations, uh, these, um, all these uh, debt um, credit default swaps, all these uh, special purpose entities, uh, which were like money market funds, except the bank guaranteed them. And a lot of that, all of that comes home to roost. So it was the craze of speculation, uh, the desire, uh, the fever, really, uh, for enriching the participants in the system, the investment bankers and the bankers, at the expense of the public. And uh, I knew it wasn't good. I actually wrote a book called The Battle for the Soul of Capitalism five years ago now, and I talked about many of these problems. But honestly, Chris, I had no idea how, how far I was understating them.
1: We're talking with Jack Bogle, the founder of Vanguard, and his new book is entitled Don't Count on It. Uh, Part three of your book is entitled What's Wrong with Mutual Funds? For the benefit of our listeners who haven't read your books or or maybe don't know all that much about Vanguard, what is the problem with mutual funds?
0: Well, that's the reason I put to begin with the title is that technically what's wrong with mutual funds, and mutual is in quotes. So the first thing that's wrong with mutual funds is is that they aren't mutual They are uh, pools of capital uh, organized by investment managers, often investment managers who have been bought by financial U.S. and and international financial conglomerates, and they buy into the fund business to earn a return on their capital, not a return on the capital of the mutual fund investors that they're supposed to serve under traditional standards of fiduciary duty. So that's essentially what's wrong. And what flows out of that is a whole lot of things that are very detrimental to investors. First, costs are excessive. Uh, The expense ratios of funds are half, again, as high as they were. When this industry was teeny in 1951, when I wrote about it in my Princeton thesis, uh, we had one of the largest funds in the industry had an expense ratio of 0.19, less than two-tenths of 1%. And the only firm in the industry that gets anywhere near that now, of course, is Vanguard. The average expense ratio is up around, for equity funds, up around somewhere between 1.1 and 1.2%. Uh, fairly weighted by assets, so uh, cost is to the, the operating expenses are much too high. Uh, number two, uh, portfolio transaction costs are high uh, because we we turn over our portfolios 100 percent a year now, and that's speculation. It's not long-term investment. And number three, despite the strong impact of the no-load business, the kind of thing with without sales commissions, let the let the buyer be the path to the better mousetrap. Uh, at your door. Uh, the, uh, uh, we have uh, about two-thirds of all mutual fund sales are made with sales loads, and that, of course, greatly depresses the investor's future returns. So in all those ways, we've gone off the wheels. Uh, heavy, heavy cost, an emphasis on speculation rather than investment, and still relying on an industry built on marketing rather than management, or an industry, as I've said in another book, uh, much too focused on uh, salesmanship and not enough focused on stewardship.
1: The book is "Don't Count on It." And Jack, before we let you get away, we need to wrap up with a round of buy-seller hold. Uh, let's start with President Obama's bipartisan deficit commission recently proposed this buy-seller hold, raising the retirement age. Buy. Why?
0: Because it was put in when the average life expectancy was probably sixty, and now the average life expectancy has crept up to about eighty. And we don't recognize that in our retirement plans, A. And B, you know, they, it was put into effect when a lot of people actually worked, <laughs> sweated, uh, did hard labor. And uh, that's only a very small part of what we do in the United States today. We, You know, we're doing providing services, even financial services, that aren't physically demanding. And uh, I like to think that my mind is still good enough. I'm 81, and uh, I'm not going to retire maybe ever. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, but um, it, it's uh, it's different in demographics. Uh, the world is different in demographics and di- and different in duties.
1: One of our writers at the Motley Fool recently wrote about this and sparked a big debate on our website. Buy-seller hold eliminating the mortgage interest deduction.
0: Definitely eliminate, but only at certain levels. You know whether that ought to be two hundred fifty thousand dollars, where you, you get it up to two fifty and not beyond. I think we tend to talk in all-or-nothing terms, but that would be a reasonable thing to do.
1: You're known by okay. That's a buy then. You're known for your long-term time horizon, uh, but a lot of people see this institution as threatened or possibly even outdated. Buy-seller hold marriage.
0: Buy marriage. Look, the basic family unit uh, has survived centuries. Uh, It's faltering a little bit. I think Time Magazine said it was all over. Uh, I don't believe it's all over. I think we need marriage uh, of a man and a woman with children, family. And, uh, you know, people can do their own thing. I'm not arguing that point at all. But uh, I do think uh, the raising of children requires a marriage. And a marriage has something to do with commitment. And we need a little more commitment, I think, here in the U.S., and a little little less uh, self-interest.
1: Now, you've been married much longer than I have. Uh, do you have any advice?
0: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I, I have two pieces of advice. I've been married 54 years, and I have two pieces of advice for anyone that wants to emulate that. First, marry a saint. And second, never forget the two most important words in the English language. Yes, dear.
1: <laughs> I think I got both those covered.
0: <laughs> okay, good. Fine. <laughs> You're a lucky man if you got the saint. <laughs>
1: Finally, you underwent a heart transplant in 1996, so this may not be an improved part of your diet. Um, buy, sell, or hold the future of the Philly cheesesteak?
0: The future of the Philly ch- cheesesteak is very good, uh, so I'd buy, uh, but I'd be very careful about everything else
1: you eat. <laughs> <laughs> so it's an indulgence?
0: It's an indulgence, and don't get carried. I actually have a cheesesteak once a month. Really? Yeah, why not?
1: Some, is, is, next time I'm up in the Philly area, you got a recommendation for me?
0: Uh, I'm not so good. I'm not, I'm not very picky. I'd I, I buy you a cheesesteak. Come on up here uh, to the Vanguard uh, Galley, where it goes for about 325
1: Sold. I will be, I will be <laughs> up there in 2011. The book, okay. the book is Don't Count on It, Reflections on Investment Illusions, Capitalism, Mutual Funds, Indexing, Entrepreneurship, Idealism, and Heroes. Jack Bogle. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh,
0: Thank you, Chris. It's been my my pleasure and a lot of fun.
1: Coming up, a look at the stocks on our radar. This is Motley Fool Money. Funny, 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 what money can do. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill, and back in the studio with me are our trio of senior analysts, Seth Jason, James Early, and Tim Hanton. Guys, time to talk about the stocks on our radar, and uh, let's bring our man Steve Broido in here to, uh, well, just to unfairly grill you about your stock. Tim Hansen, we'll start with you. Well, at the risk of getting James Early suspended by the
4: FCC, <laughs> uh, the stock on my radar this week is Female Health Company, which is a maker of the female condom. Now you may wow. not, you may not know the female <laughs> condom, but it's actually a, a a very valuable tool for fighting the spread of AIDS in sub-Saharan Africa and in Latin America. Uh, the reason it's interesting is because they just transitioned from a first-generation product. Um, which was made out of uh, um, latex, to a Mm -hmm. second-generation product made out of polymer. So it's a lot cheaper to make. So even though uh, sales volume this year, um, in the fourth quarter, they released results on Friday, was up 20%, revenues were flat. The market doesn't like seeing flat revenues, but sales volumes are going up and gross margin is going up. So it's actually a neat little opportunity. And what's the ticker symbol? Uh, FHCO.
1: Steve Broido, I think I speak for everyone when I say... uh I can't wait to hear your question.
5: Um, I guess my question is, as a recent father, Tim. Um, <laughs> no, that's not my question. Um, <laughs> my question is, uh, adoption of the. I mean, is that really taking off? That product in this country doesn't seem to. have. Is it going to take off elsewhere?
4: Well, that's true. That's why I think there's an, a misunderstanding of the stock. I think a lot of people say, you know, I've never seen, you know, a. K- I could get in a lot of trouble here, but I've never <laughs> seen a female condom in the United States being used. Um, you know, or is not popular here, or but even that,
1: in a store, or even sold.
4: Or yeah. even sold. I mean, they are. You can find them, but they're very. They're easy to find at clinics as like giveaways. The government oh. is really subsidizing these because they have a couple advantages. Like you know, a lot of the times, the male is an aggressor, and so you know, this the is the <laughs> greatest. <of stick. laughs> Watching Tim's face. Tim has sweat <laughs> <splops laughs> so just just <laughs> everywhere right I now. R- I really <laughs> wish I this was a video. Line, yeah. <laughs>
2: Let's just say that if if, if I don't see it in a vending machine in the restroom, I'm not into it. Right. So, So
4: people in the United States generally make fun of it as a concept, but as I said, it's a very valuable tool in other parts of the world for fighting the spread of AIDS and it's misunderstood, but a very interesting little company.
3: All right, James Early. Uh, Chris, I know my way around the, the sewage industry pretty well, um, <laughs> and when you think of sewage, think of me. Uh, it, also, water, though, it's, they, they go together, they're called water companies, but they're really water and sewage, and one I'm looking at today is called York Water, YORW is the ticker, based in Pennsylvania. It just has like a $203 million market cap, so it's very small, 3.2% yield, but it has a long history of raising its dividends, it's basically everything you like in, uh, about a stable water company or a bigger stable water company in a small package.
5: Steve? Um, wh- why would I want to buy a water company right
3: now? S- Steve, uh, in, in a recession, for instance, uh, nobody's going to cut back on on flushing the toilet, for example, on, on doing laundry, things like that. Water is one of the most resilient uh, businesses or industries we have, so it's, it's very stable. It's not sexy. Returns are regulated. You can't just charge whatever you want, uh, but, but the benefit is you essentially have a monopoly if you're a water company.
2: Seth Jason? I'm just going to have to go with James Early's teenager pick there and, and just say if, if you're looking for a consumer stock, a retailer right now, and you believe that teenagers are crazy and spend a lot of money on clothes, then you might as well look at Stall, which was flying high for quite a while this year, is now uh, is now down into the 23 and change, and the ticker is ARO, and usually produces quite a bit of free cash flow, has a very smart operating model and is, I think, one of the better plays in that space. Steve, teen retail.
5: Uh, with Aeropostal, I mean, I remember that being in high school. That store being around. It never seems to have really taken off. Uh, it, I mean, it,
2: oh, but it did take off. Wh- you just didn't notice. Why
5: wouldn't <laughs> I have? No- I mean, because I, I, I see Abercrombie everywhere. I mean, you see their ads. You see, it seems to be a pretty dominant company. Aeropostal seems to be uh, just a weaker brand. Am I mistaken?
2: I believe you are mistaken. It it targets a different income group. And, uh, and uh, I mean, it, it is everywhere.
1: And, and what, we, what we remember from, from long ago is not the same business. Seth Jason, James Early, Tim Hanson. Guys, thanks for being here. You're welcome. Thank you, Chris. Thanks to our special guest this week, Vanguard founder, Jack Bogle. His new book is Don't Count On It. For the latest analysis and investing commentary each day throughout the week, go to fool.com. Our engineers are Steve Broido and Gail Año Nuevo. Our producer is Mac Greer. I'm Chris Hill.